Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. If you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 14. We'll be looking at the second half of 1 Samuel chapter 14, beginning in verse 24. And we will go all the way through the end of the chapter to verse 52. So let me read our passage for us this morning, and then we'll pray and take a moment to ask for the Lord's help as we come before the truth and authority of His Word. So 1 Samuel chapter 14, beginning in verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. 
Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Marab, and the name of the younger, Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help this morning. Father, every week when we come before your word, I just pray that you would slow us down and remind us that we are fully and completely dependent upon you. We're dependent upon you first and foremost because we don't even deserve to be here this morning. We don't even deserve to be in the goodness of gathering with your people under the truth of your word to be able to sing together and pray together and to rejoice in the gospel together. But you have redeemed us. You have sent Christ to live and to die in our place and you have raised him from the grave victoriously that we might one day also join him in that resurrection. And so, Father, we are filled with gratitude and thanksgiving for what you have done for us through the work of Christ. And we are thankful that because of Jesus, you have sent your spirit to dwell in us. And so, Father, everything we do this morning, we do in complete and total dependence on your grace and your mercy to us through the cross, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the truth of your word. Father, give us eyes this morning to see your glory on display in this passage. Help us to see exactly what it is you intend for us to learn through this event that happens here in chapter 14. This is a difficult passage, Father, so I just pray that you would help us to see exactly what you intend to teach us about yourself and about ourselves, that we might serve you, that we might walk in obedience, and that we might rest in the finished work of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would guide my words this morning, that you would allow me to only speak what is true of you, allow me to, to lead everyone toward truth and to lead no one astray for the glory of your name. And so, Father, we pray that you would be at work among us, conforming us more and more to the likeness and image of Christ for your glory and for our good. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, this is a difficult passage as we land here, starting in the middle of chapter 14 through the end of the chapter. I think one of the reasons it's difficult is because the attention is shifted back to Saul at this point. And when we shift our attention back to Saul, God seems to not be on the premises, right? He seems to be absent from the story because he's largely absent from Saul's life. And so it makes it all the more difficult to understand exactly what's going on here. And having said that, one of the most important questions we can ask heading in to this part of chapter 14 is, 
Whose voice carries authority in this passage? Who should we be listening to? Because you see both Saul and Jonathan are speaking in this passage, but, but whose words should we heed? You see, the, the author of Samuel is a masterful writer, and I believe he shows us whose voice we should be listening to, and he shows us in some really creative, but I think really clear ways. We're supposed to pick up on the clues the author is giving us in this chapter as to whose voice should have the authority, whose voice we should listen to. Listen, we do this kind of thing in our everyday experiences, right? We, we're good at determining, well, sometimes we're good at, we should be good at, right? Trying to determine who we should be listening to, right? So just to give a really obvious, just made up example, if you decided, I don't know why anybody would do this, but if you decided you wanted to go jump out of an airplane, all right? I will never do it, but more power to you if you want to do it, okay? And you want to jump out of an airplane and you go to one of those places where you, you know, pay some money and you get hooked up to a guy and you jump out of the airplane. So you arrive that day and there's two people standing in front of you that you have to pick from, right? Who are you going to strap yourself to to jump out of the airplane, all right? The one guy was there when you showed up. He's been there. He's completely dressed. He has all his gear on. He's ready to go and he's standing there. The other guy, when you're walking up, he's like sprinting into the building and he's in shorts and a t-shirt and he has a coffee stain from having to drive recklessly on the way there where he spilled it on his shirt coming in. And he says, I'm here. I'm ready. I can get my gear together in like 30 seconds. Just trust me. I've done this plenty of times. Who are you picking? It's an obvious, I hope, an obvious answer. You're going to pick the guy who seems prepared. You're going to pick the guy who seems to know what he's doing. You're going to pick the guy who seems more authoritative and trustworthy in that situation. Well, in the same way, the author expects us to take a good look at Saul and Jonathan, to take a good look at them and decide who is it that we're going to trust? Whose voice are we going to listen to in this narrative? And you see what's become clear over the past few chapters of 1 Samuel and even the beginning of chapter 14 is that Jonathan is the man of God and Saul is, well, something else. <laughs> Jonathan is the one who is the faithful man of God. Jonathan is the one who fears the Lord. He's the one who, Jonathan is the one who's proven himself to be faithful time and time again. He's the one acting in faithful obedience to the Lord He's the one who's concerned about the glory of God and the victory of God over his enemy, the Philistines. It's clear, it's without question that God is supporting Jonathan's efforts. He is walking with Jonathan. So we should already have our mindset to trust him and to listen to what he says instead of listening to what Saul says. Jonathan is the faithful and the trustworthy voice, even though, even though Saul is the king. And this is going to be really important to keep in mind as we work our way through this section. And the reason it's really important to keep in mind is because I believe the author intends to continue to show us that Saul is a failed king. He is a failed king. In fact, you're, you're going to see as we continue through 1 Samuel that chapter 14 is here sandwiched between two of Saul's great failures in chapter 13 and in chapter 15. And it's to show here in the middle that, that Jonathan was more righteous than Saul. But even here in 14, we already see that Saul is a failed king and, and we can see all the more reason why God has removed the kingdom from him and that he would not have the dynasty of kingship and that that would go to someone else. You see, last week, as Steve mentioned, we, 
we saw that, that Jonathan was trustworthy and should be followed because he feared the Lord, because he had a, a right and big theology of who God is, because he trusted in the sovereignty of God that drove him toward obedience. But we're going to see essentially the exact opposite this morning because Saul's kingship is shaped by what he fails to understand about God. Because there are certain things he doesn't understand about God, he fails as king. And so there are three specific truths about God that I think Saul just seems to fail to grasp, and it leads him to be a failed king. So here are the three truths about God that Saul does not understand. Number one, the generosity of God. Number two, the justice and mercy of God. And number three, the authority of God. Saul does not understand the generosity of God, the justice and mercy of God, or the authority of God. So let's look first at this truth about God that Saul doesn't understand, the generosity of God. Look there with me again, beginning in verse 24. It says, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. It seems what we have here in verse 24 is a, essentially a flashback. He's reaching back to the moment when he rallies the troops and sends them out to go join Jonathan in the battle. If you weren't here last week, what we saw last week is Jonathan courageously, just he and his armor bearer, cross over the valley and they attack the Philistine garrison. God is with Jonathan in that victory. He walks into the camp. They, just, they wipe out 20 guys. The Philistines are thrown into confusion. Saul and his army, who are over on the other side of the valley, see the confusion happening. Saul wants to be a part of it. And so he sends his troops and he goes with them across the valley to join in the battle. And so it seems that in verse 24, we're, we're now looking at Saul in that moment. He's, he's over there on the other side of the valley, sending the people into battle. And he lays an oath on them before they go into battle. And he says, look, Go over there, but look, do not eat any food until the evening comes and I am avenged on my enemies. Now, even there, you see the first hints of the problem with Saul, because what is his concern here? His vengeance, his enemies. This should be Saul saying his concern should be about the victory of God. It should be about the vengeance toward the name and the holiness of God. And he lays this foolish, unwise oath on his people because he's concerned about himself. It seems perhaps that ultimately what Saul wants to do is to appear holy and righteous. He, he lays this unwise curse, this unwise oath on his people as a way to somehow earn God's favor or to earn the praise and admiration of the people. And so he tells them not to eat and he sends them across under this oath to not eat anything. Now, if we track closely, however, we're going to see that the author wants us to see just how foolish this oath was because in verse 25, it says the people come into the forest and there's, there's honey on the ground. And, and then the people enter the forest and it says the honey's dropping, but, but no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. Now, I think the language here to describe the land that the Philistines had occupied is intentional on the part of the author. He says, when they go into the land, when they are pushing the Philistines out, when they're pushing the enemies of God out of the land promised to his people, they notice that there's honey abundantly on the ground. The ESV then says, and the, they notice the honey was dropping 
Uh, other translations say the honey was flowing. See, this language should sound really familiar to us in two different ways. One is when God's people were wandering in the wilderness and they started complaining against God because they didn't have any food to eat. He miraculously provides food for them. And how does he do that? Do you remember? He puts manna on the ground. It is God's provision, his miraculous provision for his people. He just spreads a feast on the ground for his people. And it says now here, when, when Israel goes into the land, when they push the enemies out, there is honey spread on the ground for them. And not only that, it says the honey was dropping. It was, it was flowing. Well, do you remember what Moses had to say when he wrote Exodus chapter 3, verse 8? God says, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. An act of God's generosity. God was intent to give his people a land where they would be provided for, a land that would be flowing with milk. It would be flowing with honey, a land of all the provision they would want and need for them to enjoy. The, in other words, the author is saying to us, I believe that God intentionally provided this honey for the people as they walked into victory because he wanted them to have it. Just like he wanted them to have it in the land when he put manna on the ground, when he took them into the land that was flowing with milk and honey. Here they walk into the land that was promised to them. It belonged to them. That's why God wanted them to drive the Philistines out of it. And they walk into the land with honey on the ground and with honey flowing, and they can't eat it because their foolish king made a vow that said they couldn't touch any of it. Now, we're told then, Jonathan and verse 27 didn't know about this oath. And of course, the reason why is because Jonathan was the faithful one who was already fighting when Saul's back in the camp making the foolish vow. So Jonathan has no clue that the oath has been made. Verse 27 tells us Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb, right? If you're going to take honey out, that's the wise way to do it so you don't get your hand stung, right? So practical advice from Jonathan here in, in the Bible, right? Put the staff in, take it out, and then he takes the honey and he puts it in his mouth and he eats it. But look at what it says. His eyes became bright. It rejuvenated him. It gave him strength. But then, of course, verse 28, he's told about the foolish oath that the man who eats of it is to be cursed. And Jonathan says... Again, who are we listening to? Jonathan says, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. It was because of Saul's foolish vow that they were not able to finish off the Philistines. The defeat was not great, not just because they couldn't rejoice in it, but because the Philistines were not wiped out because the people were faint and they were weak and they couldn't carry on. You see, it's the words of Jonathan we trust here that the vow was foolish. It was wrong. It was unwise. And we see the result of it in verses 31 to 35 that the people in desperation when evening finally struck, they were so famished and starving, that they just slaughtered the animals on the ground. It's almost like if you've seen the documentaries where 
there's a, a carcass on the ground and the lions are around it and they're just digging their faces into it and there's blood all over their mouths. That's kind of the image here. They slaughter the animals on the ground. There's just blood everywhere and they're just feasting on a buffet of animal carcasses. Now they're responsible for their own sin, but we also ought to lay the fault at Saul's feet. And the author wants us to lay the fault at Saul's feet because it is his unwise, rash vow that caused the people to act in such an ungodly way. Because God's law is clear that you are not to eat the blood of the animal. It was to be drained before it was eaten. And so the people sinned in a significant way against the Lord, against the law of the Lord. And of course, when Saul finds out, he is terrified. And so he calls them back together and tells them to kill the animals on the stone so that they can drain out the blood. But here's what I want us to see. Saul's inability to understand the character and nature of God led to this. God is a generous, giving God. He made that clear when he told Moses, I'm going to take you into a land flowing with milk and honey. I want to provide for you. I want to give to you. You see, in fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 tells us, And without faith, it is impossible to please him, talking about God, of course, for whoever would draw near to God, now listen to this, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, in many ways, we may read that and think, man, Hebrews eleven six is a strange statement. Of course, we have to believe that he exists. But it says if we're going to draw near to him, it's not only that we must believe that God exists, there's also something we must believe about God. And Hebrews eleven six 6 says, if, if you're going to please God through faith, if you're going to draw near to God, don't just believe that he exists, but you need to believe that he rewards those who seek him. That he is a kind and generous God. You see, the greatest lie Satan wants you to believe is the first lie that Satan told, is the first lie that Satan speaks in the Bible. When he whispers in Eve's ear and he says, God is stingy and he's keeping something good from you. God doesn't want you to have. God is keeping you from goodness. Even though the entire garden was before them, even though it was just one tree, Satan wanted them to believe that was enough. There was something more that God's not a rewarder, a rewarder of those who seek him, that he's not good and gracious and generous. You see, nothing could be farther from the truth. God very much wanted his people to walk into victory and to enjoy the honey laying on the ground because that's who God is. I mean, just listen to God's generous nature to his people. Ephesians chapter 2 says that God saved us. And in verse 7, it says that he did it so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He saved us so that he could for all eternity just pour out his immeasurable, uncountable riches on us for all of eternity. Or 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, to an inheritance that is imperishable. It will never go away. It will never die. It will never end. It is undefiled. It is pure. It is unfading. It will never diminish. 
He saved us so we could have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He is keeping this for you for all eternity to pour out his, his, his mercy on you, to pour out his grace on you, to pour out his generosity onto you. Or Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, there's a... There's a worldly philosophy of religion that says the main way to please God is by denying ourselves of good things. Now, is that true is the question. Saul thought it was true. Now, I'm not talking about denying yourself of evil things, right? Denying yourself of good things. Well, Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Now listen to this. These indeed... These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They're of no value. And we see it right in front of our faces here. He denies them the ability to rejoice in and partake in the provision of God, and it doesn't kill the flesh. It doesn't keep them from sinning. What do they do? They sin and eat of the blood of the animals on the ground. You see, that's because Saul was worried about the appearance of promoting self-made religion and asceticism, but it is no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Listen, it is through the cross that we have been set free. And he set us free to enjoy his good gifts, right? Because Jesus has fulfilled the law, we can eat bacon, Right? Praise the Lord. Can I have an amen? amen? Right? 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 We are free. We don't have to submit ourselves to the law, right? To, to these ceremonial parts of the law. Certainly we have to pursue holiness and righteousness, but we are, we are free. We don't have to submit ourselves to do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It may appear to be wise, but it is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. God is a generous God. And one of the great lies of Satan is he tells you, don't partake of the generosity of God. He wants you to deny yourself. And Paul says, no, that's not actually going to help you stop sinning. Now listen, there's a time and a place for fasting. There's a time and a place for people to choose to have certain kinds of diets. I'm not here to condemn any of that. What I am here to say is if you are doing that because you think it helps you become holy, that particular diet, it doesn't. Now, there is a role for fasting, a temporary time of fasting where God wants us to set that time apart to focus on the things of God and not be distracted by food and those kinds of things. The, the Bible certainly promotes that. But the big picture is that God is a generous God. Saul had no understanding of it. and He thought the wise thing to do would be to cut his people off from what God has provided. And instead, it was the most foolish thing he could have done because it kept his people from celebrating in the victory and continuing to pursue the Philistines and take them out. So Saul fails to understand the generosity of God, but he also fails to understand the justice and mercy of God. Look, beginning in verse 36, 
Saul makes the decision, which I think is a right and good initial decision in verse 36 to go and to plunder the Philistines until the morning. And even listen to that last line of that statement, let us not leave a man of them. That was the right thing for Saul to do. It was right and good for him to go and finish the battle, right? Finish the war, take the Philistines out. It's what he was supposed to do. It's why he was anointed as king. So yes, this is good, Saul. Finally, you're stepping up to the plate. Yes, this is exactly what you ought to do. But of course, the priest slows him down and says, let's just draw not near to God here. And and so Saul asked God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But God does not answer him. Now, here we need to wrestle and struggle with a really difficult question. Why doesn't God answer Saul? As you read, Saul's going to say, well, it seems that sin has arisen today. I think that's true. So I think he's right. The question is, whose sin keeps God from answering that day? We know who Saul thinks is ultimately responsible for God not answering that day. But that's not the question I'm asking. I'm not asking who Saul thinks is responsible. I'm saying, whose sin is it actually that prevents God from answering that day? Well, I think there are actually some really clear indications in the text about whose sin it is that causes God not to answer Saul when he asked God that they should pursue the Philistines. So first, what is Saul's immediate reaction to God's silence in verse 39? As the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. That's a really weird thing for Saul to say. Why does he immediately start pointing to Jonathan? At this point, he doesn't have a clue what Jonathan has done. He doesn't know that he tasted of the honey. So that's already weird thing number one. Why is he already singling out Jonathan, his son? And we're even told not a man among them answered him. They're they're not giving Jonathan up. They're not telling him what happened. Then he says to all Israel, okay, we're going to call everyone together and we're going to essentially draw lots like we've looked at before to see who's responsible for this sin. Now we've talked about this before. This happens when Saul is anointed as king. They bring together all the tribes and through the drawing of lots, one tribe is selected, right? The tribe of Benjamin comes forward and then a smaller clan from Benjamin comes forward. And then from that clan, it's the family of Saul and Saul is then made clear that he's the king. We have another situation where that happens that we've talked about a number of times, and we're going to continue to talk about this morning. In Joshua chapter 7, when they are going into Jericho, and Achan takes of the devoted things in the battle of Jericho, and then they go to battle with another time, and they're defeated because Achan has taken of the devoted things. But nobody knows that yet, and so they need to find out where's the sin in the camp, who caused this. And so Joshua calls everyone together. They pick one tribe. And then from that tribe, they pick a clan. From that clan, they pick the family. And they find out, hey, it's, it's actually Achan that's responsible for this. But that's not what Saul does. He doesn't line them up by tribes. It's, it's really, really strange. He says, hey, everybody in Israel, you get over there. And me and Jonathan are going to be over here. And you know what's going through Saul's mind? He's like, I know it's not me. So essentially he's saying, Jonathan's over here, all of you are over there. That's really, really strange. That's not how it's been done. It's not how it was done in chapter 11. It's not how it was done in Joshua chapter 7. Why single out Jonathan? Why say 
though it be in Jonathan, he shall surely die. It is a strange thing. Why didn't Saul say, if it be in me, I shall surely die? So these already have these two really weird things happening together. And of course, we find out that they use Urim and Thummim. We don't know exactly what these things were, maybe stones, but they were something that was on the effort of the high priest that would be used in decision-making. Maybe they were different colors. We're never really told, but that's what that is. It was just a way of, of drawing lots, essentially, to decide who may have been guilty or who have done something or who should be anointed king or whatever it may be in a particular situation. Yes, in the end, verse 42 tells us that Jonathan was taken. But everything in me, as we read the text, says to me that Saul manipulated the outcome. There's no other reason for it to be set up this way. It's never happened like this before. Why did he mention Jonathan's name from the very start? Right? There's sin. Who could it be? Well, if it's Jonathan, right, then he shall surely die. And then he puts everybody on one side and Jonathan on the other side. And I think that's because Saul is trying to deflect because ultimately the sin is in Saul. God didn't answer because Saul was the sinner. Now, why do I say that? There are, there's a specific reason why I think that's the case. Remember, I said we need to pay attention to who we ought to listen to in this passage. And if you back up to verse 29 and we listen to Jonathan, what does he say about his father? My father has troubled the land. My father has troubled the land. Now, I don't do this much, but I think it's really important here. The Hebrew word for troubled is akar. My father has akar the land. He has troubled the land. That word is only used nine times in the entirety of the history books of the Old Testament. It's used a handful of other times in Psalms and Proverbs, but it's only used nine times in all of the history books, the narrative books of the Old Testament. Four of those nine times are in reference to Achan and what happened in Joshua chapter 7. Achan is the Akar of the land. And in fact, it says it clearly in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 7. The son of Carmi, Achan, the troubler of Israel. Achan, the Akar of Israel. It's even in Achan's name. He's the troubler. Achan, the troubler of Israel, who broke faith in the matter of the devoted thing. You see, I think these are intentional words on Jonathan's lips here in 1 Samuel chapter 14, that just like Achan was the troubler of Israel and he was the sinner who prevented victory that day, it is Saul who is the troubler of Israel. He is the Akar. He is the Achan in this situation. But he's pointing to everybody else except himself. Now, why was Saul doing that? I think Saul probably knew his oath was foolish, but he couldn't back down from his oath. He had no understanding of the mercy of God. He knew that he was a sinner, but instead he sought to justify himself and to kill somebody else instead. And what would have been an entirely unjust act. Now, there's further evidence, by the way. Do you remember when there were those who said Saul shouldn't have been king and, and Saul has that initial victory and there were these worthless men and they say, Saul, why don't you kill the worthless men who question your kingship? And what does Saul say? No, nobody's going to die in Israel today. There's been a great victory. We're not going to kill anybody. 
And then in this chapter, when the men are literally eating the blood, stealing the meat like lions around a carcass, and they have blood on their mouth, does Saul seek to kill them for their sin against the Lord? (laughs) No. But here, because someone has sinned against Saul's words, he seeks his death. You see, Jonathan says, I tasted of the honey, verse 43, that was on the tip of the staff. I tasted it in my hand. Here I am. I will die. Saul says, God do so to me and more also you shall surely die. But then the people said, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground for he, Jonathan, has worked with God this day. You see, this is all the more interesting because starting in verse 36, Saul says, hey, let's go down and fight against the Philistines. The people say, do whatever seems good to you. Saul says, let's find out who caused the sin in the camp. Let's gather everybody together. The people say, do what seems good to you. But then now when it comes time to take to, to execute Jonathan, they no longer say, do what seems good to you. They stand up to him because they know he is an unjust king carrying out an unjust sentence. You see, Jonathan is the one who worked with God that day. And it wasn't Jonathan's sin that caused God's silence. It was Saul's sin that caused God's silence. Saul is so full of pride and arrogance, he refuses to recognize his own sin. And to cover it up, he condemns another. Therefore, the sinful people with the blood probably still on their mouths have to save the son from an unrighteous father. And yet in the gospel, we have the exact opposite story. We have the righteous father who sends his willing son to lay down his life to die for an unrighteous people. We have God himself willing to die to save his people. This is the good news of the gospel. You see, Saul had no concepts of the justice and the mercy of God. And so Saul desperately thought his only hope was to deflect and to condemn someone else and to kill someone else. But yet here we are. We can live in the freedom of the gospel. And when we sin, when we are in the wrong, we can just confess it before the Lord and experience the forgiveness he provides through the death of Jesus on the cross in our place. It is the justice and mercy of God that allows us to act with justice toward others, to show mercy to others. And Saul had zero understanding of it. Therefore, he was an unfit, unjust, failed king. So Saul doesn't understand the generosity of God. He doesn't understand the justice and mercy of God. And then finally, he doesn't understand the authority of God. Look there with me in verses 47 to 52. This is a summary of Saul's life. And it's a weird summary because we've seen that Saul has just not been a great king. But yet, this seems to be a positive description of him, right? When Verse 47, when Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the king of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. He did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hand of those who plundered them. Like, it sounds like a really great description. And, and Saul really did, militarily speaking, do a lot of great things. There's no question about it. But here's the problem. Just back up a little bit into the previous section in verse 46. After all of it settles out and Jonathan doesn't die that day because the people ransomed him, which by the way, more evidence that it was not wrong to let Jonathan go. God doesn't condemn them or bring judgment or condemnation on them for not killing Jonathan that day, showing us that Jonathan was not in fact guilty or worthy of death. 
Nevertheless, after all that settles out in verse 46, Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place. (laughs) This whole event began with Saul saying, let's go out and raid the Philistines by night and let's kill every single man. And by the time we get to the end of it, Saul's like, oh, you know what? Never mind. And the result is verse 52. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. What a dramatic difference between that and the description of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13, Samuel's victories. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. That's what a righteous leader does. But here the unrighteous Saul picks his battles. He chooses his battles. He still, for whatever reason, refuses to finish off the Philistines. And because he refuses to walk in obedience and completely wipe them out and take them out, verse 52 says, they fought against them all the days of the kingship of Saul. You see, it's tempting to apply human judgment to this summary in verses 47 through 52 and say, look, hey, Saul did a lot of great things. Let's give him credit, right? Let's give him his flowers. Let's commend Saul for what he did. But I think that sandwich between two clear statements to say Saul was a failure. It's not about the greater good that Saul did. It's about the fact that he failed to do the one thing he was anointed to do. And that is take out the Philistines, free God's people from the oppression of the Philistines. I mean, it always seems that Saul does a few good things, but in the end, he fails to do the very thing God has commanded him to do. He has no understanding of God's authority over his life. Saul just picks and does whatever he wants to do. He doesn't submit himself to the judgment of God. He doesn't seem to care about the ultimate judgment of God. He is, in the end, a failure. Now listen, we can be tempted to judge our own lives in the same way. We can be tempted to think because we're doing a lot of good things, the the few bad things in our life don't really matter anymore. That as long as we're pursuing obedience in these areas of our life, it's okay if we give into disobedience in these areas of our life. The good outweighs the bad. And we do all kinds of justification and sanctification math in our head, and we try to make it work, and we make excuses and justifications for it. But in the end, in the end, to disobey one part of the law is to disobey all of the law God says to us. And we need to place ourselves under the authority and judgment of God instead of the authority and judgment of our own minds and hearts. You see, this is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 5. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord who judges us. Therefore, by God's grace, we must live our lives before the gaze of a holy God under his authority, under his kingship, under his judgment and pray that that drives us toward obedience and holiness in all areas of our lives for the glory of his name and not make excuses about not doing the very things God has called us to like Saul did. But even beyond that, the good news for us is the good news Saul could never understand. And that is even when we fail to do so, even when we do fail in those areas of our lives, we have a redeemer. We have a God who is not only just, but a God who is merciful. 
and invites us to come before him and to repent of our sins and to confess our sins before him, to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the good news of the gospel. You see, when we live under the good news of the gospel, we live under God's authority and we refuse to sugarcoat or excuse away our sins. Instead, we have the freedom to confess them, to admit them, to say about them, they are sinful and rebellious and run to the cross in the freedom of forgiveness. This is the good news of the gospel. You see, what we believe about God shapes our lives. We saw what Jonathan believed about God last week shaped his bold, courageous obedience. And we see this week what Saul failed to believe about God shaped his disobedience. So theology matters. What you believe about God matters. We need that solid foundation under our feet. So when the waves crash and the floodwaters come, we keep standing firm in pursuit of obedience to our Savior because our house is built on the rock of the teachings of Jesus Christ. So let us not be like Saul and fail to see who God is. Instead, let's be like Jonathan and fill our lives with the truth about God so that we can walk in obedience for the glory of his name. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the truth of your word, for how you have revealed yourself to us. Uh, Father, what a privilege it is every week to just come in here and wrestle and struggle with your word and meditate over it. And Father, we're so thankful for your spirit who awakens our eyes and our hearts to understand what you teach us. And so, Father, we just pray as we continue to work through 1 Samuel that you would teach us even more and more and more about yourself. And as we learn more of you, we may become more like Jesus. That's what we desire. Father, that's what we plead with you to accomplish in our lives. Uh, good and for your glory. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.